Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Our guest this week is legendary rock and roll manager and trailblazing record label owner, Miles Copeland. Miles' name is synonymous with innovation and discovery in the world of music. As the founder of IRS Records, the label seemingly could do no wrong in signing some of the coolest music of the 80s, like R.E.M., The Go-Go's, The English Beat, and Concrete Blonde, among many others. As a manager, Miles managed the police from the very beginning, and also managed Sting's later solo work, both for a combined multi-decade run. Miles has great stories about his amazing contributions to the world of music over the past 45 years and has written a great book about it, Two Steps Forward, One Step Back, My Life in the Music Business, published by Jawbone in July of everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. My guest today is Miles Copeland. A lot of times in these interviews, we are interviewing songwriters, we are interviewing artists, we are interviewing record producers. But I find it really interesting to sometimes go behind the curtain a little more and speak to people whose name may not be as well known on the surface to the public as some of the superstars in front of the stage, in, in front of the uh, curtain, rather. Um, but Miles has an amazing book out right now called Two Steps Forward, One Step Back. And it's a great memoir that has recently been released. Miles is joining us today from France. Miles, welcome. Hey, how you doing? Nice to be with you. Thank you so much. I find so much of your history so interesting that I'm absolutely thrilled to be speaking with you today. A lot of people may not know some of your background. So before we get into that, to give you a quick intro, Miles has had some amazing careers inside of the music business. He started as a manager he ended up managing one of the biggest bands in the world with The Police, started his own record label, IRS Records, one of the most successful independent record labels of all time, and in the process has worked with some of the biggest artists over the last 50 years. So let's start in the beginning, Miles. A lot of people who know about you know that your dad was involved in the early days of the CIA, which brought him, even though he was American, brought him to very interesting places throughout the world when you were growing up. So can you give us a little bit of what a young Miles Copeland III, because your, your dad was Miles Copeland as well, correct? That's correct, yeah. So a young Miles Copeland III growing up in some very exotic locales like Syria and Egypt and, and Lebanon. Tell us about that. 
Well, you know, my father, strangely enough, was from Birmingham, Alabama, goes to England during the war, meets my mother, who is in British intelligence, SOE, and they get married, and I'm the result. And then he's, they've, they, he was in OSS, and they stationed him in Washington because they decided they would centralize all the intelligence agencies that were existing during the war, hence the Central Intelligence Agency. So he was one of the, I guess he could claim to be one of the founders of the CIA. Well, when they had organized it, you know, they, he, they said to him, well, uh, where do you want to be stationed? And so he said, well, the Middle East, because my mother had sort of pushed him to the Middle East. And uh, we ended up in Syria. And he was the cultural attache in Syria, and which was his cover, and got involved in helping the General Zaim overthrow the government. So he, he also can claim to be the first American to overthrow a government by covert action. It was all a mistake, believe me. But <laughs> the, the reality was that, that he, he, he got sucked into it. And, and when the general said, either you help me or I go to the Russians, that was it. They said, well, you're on site. Go ahead and do what you got to do. So they overthrew the government. You write so vividly about it in the book, Miles. What was it like from your perspective as a young kid seeing all of this espionage and intrigue unfold in front of your eyes, or were you just a kid and it didn't really register what was going on? I was a kid. I mean, what did I know? I mean, I know we, we were we were told to leave the house immediately because, you know, we didn't know why. We got we came back and saw came back to the house and saw machine gun bullets everywhere. You know, so I knew something was going on, but uh, and then we went to Egypt, where my father was was actually loaned by the, by the CIA to the president of Egypt, Kamal Abdel Nasser, and he helped build the Mukhabarat, which is Egypt's secret intelligence organization. And by that time, I began to realize something was going on because I met Nasser. He came to the house for dinner. You know, it's not usual that the president <laughs> of a country comes to dinner. You know, uh, and uh, the next door, our next door neighbor was his. Um, bodyguard, you know, who ended up as the vice prime minister who helped me out with the police years later. Uh, and then we moved to Lebanon, by which time he had left the CIA and sort of formed his own, you know, he joined with some other CIA types and they uh, formed their own sort of intelligence organization to help American companies. So I guess in a way, I knew what was going on, but I didn't really know all the details until I got to college, you know. And I started seeing the manuals that he'd left behind. <laughs> You know, stamped top secret, you know, which I would, of course, pull out and use, you know, to in impress people, you know. But yeah, so my, my background was basically the Middle East. What did I know about music? Well, which begs the question, did your dad ever say to you, Miles, what did he call you if he was Miles? Did he call you Junior? They called me Little Miles. So would he say to you, Little Miles, I want you to follow in my footsteps in the family business? No, he actually advised me not to go into the CIA. He said, look, you know, it's all changed during Vietnam. Things changed. Uh, you're you're going to hate it. You know, you're going to run into a lot of stupid people who are going to, you know, not understand anything. And my advice is not not go into the CIA. Of course, he didn't tell me what to go into. <laughs> so yeah, I, I sort of figured, well, you know, line of least resistance, maybe I'll do something in the Middle East, you know. And it just so happened I came across a music group and, you know, ended up in the music business, much to my, you know, my father 
wasn't really that supportive in the beginning until I walked in with my first advance. Then he said, son, okay, you can go. You can do it. You became a music manager before you went back to Alabama in college or after? After. And the, the first act that you managed, was that Rupert's People? They were really the first group, but they weren't really a group that was active. They all had jobs and all that. I, I would say my first real management client who actually did shows and whatever was a group called Wishbone Ash, which I helped put together. And a, a really well-known group inside, you know, if, you, if you're digging deep inside the history of music, that is a well-known name. How did you come to manage Wishbone Ash as a new music manager? Well, when I got to England, I was approached by this group, Rupert's People, and they said, well, we want you to manage us. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to get drafted. And sure enough, I did. You know, a few days later, I get drafted. I reported for duty in Washington and I got rejected. I got rejected by the U.S. Army, believe it or not, right at when Vietnam was going on. And all my friends were trying to find ways to get out of the army. And I figured, well, what the hell? You know, it's an experience, you know, but I got rejected. You know, so I sent a telegram back to Rupert's people saying, well, I'll be back in London. And uh, I got rejected by the U.S. Army. I get a telegram back saying, God bless your feet. I got rejected for high arches. <laughs> so I go back to London. The group comes to see me and says, well, manage us. And well, I said, well, I, I, I don't know anything. And they said, well, well, we'll show you around. So they took me out to clubs. And on one of the clubs, I saw a couple of guys that became wishbone ash and that was really the start of it so it was during and i was basically trying to get educated as to what the hell the music business was in england in 1969 and uh i came across this group who were breaking up that night as a matter of fact and i said well maybe i can help and sure enough they came to see me and i said well let's put in you know let's find a guitar player to replace the guy that's leaving and that's how we started and did you end up getting them a record deal as a new manager? And like I said, I was learning the ropes from 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 ground zero, basically. And uh, we couldn't make up our mind on the guitar player, so we, ended, we we had two choices. So we decided to keep them both. So that's how we ended up with two lead guitars. And you know, I then started booking shows and going out to try to learn the business in England. And after about a year. We, we'd done enough shows, so Deep Purple saw us. We, we, we did a support gig for Deep Purple. And Richie Blackmore actually called his producer and said, uh, I saw this group the other night, and uh, you should probably produce them. And then I got approached by Derek Lawrence, uh, who was a producer, and uh, said, look, I can get you a record deal and uh, if you let me produce the group. And I didn't know any better. And it was an offer I couldn't refuse, basically, because I had no other offers. And I said, well, okay, if you can get us a record deal, you can produce the group. He got us the record deal, and he ended up producing the group. What label was he affiliated with? MCA Records.
So after Wishbone Ash has their record deal and Derek makes their record, some of the other bands that you managed in that era, Renaissance, Climax Blues Band, Curved Air, were they all happening in rapid succession or did that happen over time? Well, I, I kind of learned my ropes with Wishbone Ash and, you know, they began to do pretty well. We toured America, you know, we, we had an album that was voted best album of the year and all that. And then, you know, as a manager in England, you know, I came across Renaissance and then I came across the Climax Blues Band. And then um, I got a phone call one day from Daryl Way, who was forming a new group and uh, he had been in Curved Air. And uh, I, I went to see his group. And like I explained in the book, um, I had no intention of taking on another act. But uh, in one of those moments of honesty, I said, you know, I saw the show and I said, Daryl, my advice is you're really great, but the band sucks. So if I were you, I'd fire them. Well, I figured no musician wants to be told the truth. So that was the last I was going to hear of Daryl Way. Next day, phone rings. It's Daryl Way. Okay, I fired the group. You're my manager. Now what do I do? (laughs) Uh, all, all of a sudden, I'm the manager of, of, of Daryl, of and I, it, as it happened a week later, they get a notice from the tax man saying Curved Air owes money, and so we decided to reform Curved Air, and uh, my brother, I put my brother Stuart, who had just come back to London, I put him in as tour manager, you know, and he, then he ended up becoming drummer of the group, and that was his first group, so it was like a one of those kind of strange stories of, you know, one thing leads to another leads to another. Well, you write in the book that one of your biggest failures was a tour that you put together in 1975 called Star Truckin' that almost led you to bankruptcy, but out of the ashes really taught you how to figure out what you wanted to do moving forward. Do you want to talk about that? Well, you know, I, I I had always sort of, you know, the reality is what goes up goes down, you know. But when you're Mr. Positive, you know, you start off, you're doing pretty well. I figured, well, you know, I, I wasn't getting hit singles with, from, from the band. So I was figuring, well, I've got to break them, make them big by playing to people. So I wanted to play to bigger and bigger audiences. So I decided that I would create this festival tour going across Europe. And I would I would hire some big name acts and put my acts with them. And hopefully, you know, the the success of the big acts would splash on my groups. And and I would I would make my groups bigger that way. You know, unfortunately, I bit off more than I could chew. And uh, I learned in Star Trucking that what what goes up does go down and that you better be very careful with your money, you know, because, uh, you know, I just didn't realize that that uh, things could go wrong. I and they, of course they did. You know, I, I had you know, if you if you go on tour with one group, you know, there's always something can go wrong, you know. But if you go on tour with six groups, you can be sure something is going to go wrong. You know, six times as many possibilities of going wrong. So I put too many eggs in one basket. And unfortunately, that basket broke and uh, ended. I ended up near bankruptcy, not quite bankrupt, but pretty close. And at that point, it was in England, and I learned another valuable lesson is that, you know, you learn who your friends are when you're in trouble, you know, and there weren't many around, you know. So I learned to value those people that will stick with you when you're down, you know. 
And there were a few promoters that would take my phone call, but most people just wrote me off, said, Miles Copeland's finished, you know. But funnily enough, at the same time as I was basically broke and had no money, the punk rock movement was starting in England. And the music business basically decided that these people were, that it was a musical genre, that it wasn't going to succeed. And so they were dismissed. So the reality was this was a whole new generation of kids who wanted to get out there and form bands and make music. But the music business said no. But I had no money and I was willing to say yes because they were the only people who would, you know, they were one of the few who would take my phone call. So I ended up with a lot of these sort of punk bands that nobody would pay attention to, but I paid attention to them. And lo and behold, of course, they started succeeding. You know, it led eventually to the to Squeeze and the Police and a number of other bands. But it was basically, we were both in the same boat that nobody wanted to know about either of us. And so we, we kind of were allies. Well, who were some of those early bands? I know that as a booking agent, you helped get the Sex Pistols their first European tour, that there's crazy stories in the book of you and Malcolm McLaren. You witnessed, you know, some of the early Clash gigs in London. It must have been a crazy time in the early punk days in London. It was a crazy time because the 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 national press were going bonkers over the 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 what they called this insidious punk movement, you know. I was actually at one one of the big national papers called me a Svengali of this evil force, you know, whereas the music press completely just, you know, didn't want to know about this music. So it was a strange time in which the national press was giving it coverage, but the music people just didn't want to know. So I booked this, I, you know, I, I ended up as the agent of the Sex Pistols and a lot of these bands simply out of because nobody else would take their phone call, you know. I began to learn what, you know, Malcolm McLaren was up to and uh, the clash and all of these bands. And I started a independent record company because none of the labels would sign the acts, you know? So again, I was learning as step by step because nobody else was there. Basically nobody else was in the room. And so I basically filled the void. When do you think that things changed with the music press? When did the music press start paying attention? Well, you know, it, it took quite a while, really, because um, people forget that in the beginning, the police, for instance, were completely dismissed. I couldn't get a record deal with the police. I couldn't get anybody in England to pay attention to the group, so I had to go to America. And it really probably was, was not until... Um, the police went to America and started to their album started to happen that people began to wake up everywhere and say, well, you know what? There's something going on here. Maybe we should sign some of these bands. And, you know, squeeze started having hit records in England. Billy Idol left generation X and went off to America and eventually became Billy Idol. You know, Blondie began to happen. You know, things, be it, it was a slow process, but by 19, 70, I think it was 77 was really sort of this whole thing going on in the punk movement. 78, 79 is when all of a sudden things started to move. And by the end of the decade, people woke up to the fact that there was really something going on. 
But the real big change happened when the Go-Go's went to number one in America. That cha- that brought America on board. Well, that and that obviously has to do with your record label IRS records, which we'll get to in a second. But I want to go back to the origin of Squeeze and how you came to work with them and the origin of the police and how you came to work with them. So chronologically, which came first? I signed Squeeze when I was still doing, you know, the progressive rock thing. They were very young and they didn't really fit the progressive rock mold and they didn't really fit, fit, uh, fit the punks because they really weren't angry enough. Um, they were, I would have called them a transitional group, but I always had a problem with Squeeze and they, they wrote great songs, but there was really, the group is, it was Jules Holland was one type of artist and Chris and Glenn were another. So it was really two groups in one. But they were great. So they they were the first. And also they but they were uh, I decided that they were young enough that they could be part of this punk movement and they would be the ideal group to go to America because they weren't going to offend everybody. Because the punks, the Sex Pistols went to America, they offended everybody, you know. (laughs) So in America, the whole idea was this whole punk thing is angry people who are who are going to basically cause trouble and wreck places. <laughs> Squeeze kind of changed their mind. They went in, they said, you know what? This is actually a pretty good group, you know. They were polite. Yeah, they were punk light in the way, but they were polite. <laughs> And they kind of opened the door. So people began to go, well, you know, maybe, maybe there is something. How did you get squeezed their record deal with A&M? Well, A&M had had the experience of signing the Sex Pistols and, of course, then dropped them because they had they had attacked some well-known TV personality, you know. So I think A&M was interested in the idea of a punk rock band, but they wanted somebody that they could understand. Squeeze, they could understand. Squeeze represented the punks, but not the nasty side of it. And I think that's enabled me to get a record deal uh, with, with A&M Records. And that was really, you know, the, the good news about A&M was it, was a, it, had, a, it had, had a pretty decent reputation as a record company. And the fact that uh, we had signed a band there gave the band a certain amount of credibility. So... Uh, but they opened they opened the door, and I created a relationship with AM Records, which I later used for the police. Later on, I called my brother after the squeeze tour, and I said, "Look, can I, I can't get anybody interested in the police in England? Can you book a tour in America? Follow the, the footsteps after squeeze." Which brother are you talking about now, Miles? Uh, this is my brother Ian. My brother Ian got got became an agent at the uh, Paragon Agency in Macon, Georgia. And he had booked the squeeze tour, you know, which which was, you know, a little difficult. But the reality was AM Records was backing it. So at least we had tour support, you know, was sort of their traditional way of a British band touring America. With the police, however, AM Records didn't even know they had the group. They didn't offer tour support, but there were only three guys in the band. So, I, you know, one of the lessons I give in the book is that, you know, if you can make something affordable, 
then you've got a lot more options. With the police, only three guys, we could break even at $300 a night. We could literally, you know, with, with the punk rock movement, you didn't need tons of equipment and all that. It was a matter of fact, the less you had, the better in a way, you know. So I called Ian. I said, can you book an American tour? And he said, well, you've got no record company. And I said, well, I know, but can you book a tour? And he actually did. He booked, he booked 28 dates on the East Coast. And we played every dive and dump in America. But it opened the door for the police. Well, talk about lessons that you've learned and you impart from your experiences in the book. There's a great story about you offering the police to AM Records because you had already recorded their album independently. You made it easy for them to say yes. And that is a recurring theme in the book where if you make it easy for the answer to be yes, you're more likely to get yes for an answer. You want to talk about that? You know, when I wrote the book, I was much more interested in giving lessons that I learned, you know, both mistakes that I made and successes. I wanted the book to be more of an inspirational book than a memoir saying, basically, this is what I did and aren't I great? You know, I, I, I really didn't want to write a memoir. I wanted to write, you know, something that would be motivational in a way. And that is really one of the lessons is that if you make yes easy, you're going to get yes as an answer. If you make no easy, you're going to get no. If you ask for too much money, the answer is going to be no. With AM Records, I went in with the police. I had I had recorded the album for a thousand pounds because I found this engineer who was a doctor by day. And by night, he wanted to be a music producer. So he built it in the back of his doctor's office. He built a studio and he offered me a thousand, you know, for a thousand pounds, you can have a month to record an album. So I went in with the police and we recorded this album. And I figured, you know, how bad could it be? You know, I'll sell enough records to make back a thousand pounds. But when I heard Roxanne, I realized that there was a lot more to this band than, you know, just some punk rock group that my brother Stuart was pushing, you know. And that's when I went to AM Records. But I had no good, I had no press. I had no tour in front of them. I really had nothing to recommend the group other than the record and other than the song Roxanne. So I decided that I would make them a deal they couldn't say no to. So I went in and I said, look, the album's yours. It's yours. It's free. Cost you nothing. All you got to do is pay me your highest royalty when it sells. And let your own people decide how many they're going to press. It's up to you. No risk involved. Now, listen to the record. And I'll wager that that A&R guy who listened to that record, it was probably the only time that he listened to a record that he wasn't thinking to himself, you know, what's this going to cost me? Is there a hit single? You know, what's my boss going to say? Is this going to eat up my budget for the year? Uh, all the negatives that one could imagine when you're signing an act, you know. He, as far as he was concerned, all he had to listen to was the music. Did he like it or not? And lo and behold, of course, he liked the music. And he was free, so how bad could it be? So he said, yes, you got a deal. Who was that A&R guy, Miles? Mike Noble is his name. 
And was Jerry Moss involved early on as well? Jerry Moss didn't even know about the group until we after we toured America. And he <laughs> called me up actually to ask me whether the group was his in America. <laughs> well, let's go back a little bit. And how did Stewart playing with Curved Air evolve into this new group called The Police? Well, Stewart, you know, got interested in the punk rock thing. You know, I was encouraging him because Curved Air had been one of the groups that sort of wound down during my star trucking fiasco and i ran out of money and i still had dates but you know he realized that you know the group needed money and i was no longer going to be able to finance them so he decided that he was going to have a young punk rock group stripped down three-piece easy simple with the least amount of baggage that you could possibly have and he figured three three people is enough and that was basically the idea of the police and for the name, he figured I need a name that jolts and a name that means something. Well, you know, some people have asked him, how did you get the name? And he says, I got cars all over the world that are driving around with the name of my band on the side of the car. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how we came up with the name. So basically, the police was basically started off as a punk group, as stripped down as you can possibly be, you know, bass player who can sing and write songs and a guitar player and a, and a drummer. That was it. Three people. And uh, that was basically the foundation of what the police were. So he got excited about the sort of the punk rock thing, you know, because I had I had sort of told him that, the, that there was a lot going on and he figured this was an interesting way to go. But he ran into trouble. And that's when I came in and said, look, let's record an album. And uh, it was during that recording that I heard Roxanne and realized that there was a lot more going on here than than they than they thought. And then I took it to AM Records, and that that was that that started the whole ball rolling. Right, the band didn't even want to play you, Roxanne, during the playback. It was the last song they played you, a little sheepishly, right? Yeah, they they remember this was the height of the punk rock thing when everything was pretty aggressive and nasty, you know. And Roxanne is a ballad, you know. It's it's fairly minimal. It's a love song, you know. And so the band figured, well, Miles is going to you know, we're a punk group and we're supposed to be playing punk music. And, you know, Roxanne is not really that. So let's not play it, you know. So I kept badgering him. I said, look, you got one more song, play it. Well, finally, they played it. And I'm looking at three hang guys with, you know, looking down and waiting for me to chastise them. How did they write this, this silly ballad, you know. But I actually looked at him as a gentleman. This is a classic. This is a song that's going to change our lives. And it did. And it was one of those moments of recognition, I guess, that I had, you know, the band didn't recognize it. I did. I guess it was one of those moments that I could sort of put up the flag and say, well, yeah, that was one moment that I was pretty smart. Very smart. Let's go back a second. How did Stuart find Andy and Sting to join his band? Well, he had come across 
uh, Sting when uh, during during Curved Air when he played Newcastle and he was invited to see uh, this 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 group Last Exit who had a bass player who was pretty interesting who turned out to be Sting. Uh, so he kind of kept the name in the back of his mind, you know. Andy Summers was somebody that they they got hired to do a show. And in Germany, uh, backing a German musician, and he had hired Andy Summers. And the group kind of met Andy and thought, well, you know, he's an interesting guitar player. And he quite liked the, what the police were doing. So it was kind of one of those, it wasn't really planned, but uh, they met and decided, well, okay, let's, let's have Andy join the group. So it became a four piece for a bit. And then, of course, they realized, well, what do we really need? two guitar players. Well, no, they didn't really. And so Henry Padovani was, was the original guitar player was uh, asked to step down and then they ended up as a three piece. With Sting early on, when, when you met Sting for the first time, did you see in him that this was somebody who was going to play such a meaningful part in your life for so long? No, I, I, I think that, you know, one of the realities is, you know, you, you, you kind of go with the flow, you know, Stuart came in and he found Sting and Sting was part of the band, but you know, Sting was not, let's say you're the easiest person in the beginning. I remember him walking on stage in one of the gigs, you know, and he, he announced, he says, well, we're a punk group. And, uh, which means we play banal songs and we're crap. <laughs> and I'm sitting there with my hands. Oh God, Sting, please just shut up. You know, but he used to do things like that. But the reality was they were they were crap at that time, you know. And it wasn't until Roxanne came out that the true nature of, of what Sting could write came out. Because I think when I when I recognized Roxanne, Sting must have had in the back of his mind, well, I got more songs like that. And, you know, Can't Stand Losing You and Walking on the Moon and Message in a Bottle and all these great songs that were probably lurking in there somewhere that came out later, you know? So I think in the beginning, the police were not, they, they wanted to be a punk group, but they really weren't. And Andy hated punk and so did Sting. You know, that that's the reality. We, we always use bands like the police as an example of what artist development is really about when you get it right. You know, it means touring to an audience of, you know, maybe 10 people at, at a club, including the bar staff. There's a great moment in your book where you talk about an early police show in Syracuse on their first U.S. tour where there were literally four fans, but one of those four fans ended up becoming a major ally of yours and, and the band moving forward. You never really know who's going to be in the audience, and you never really know who's going to be the person that can change things, you know. And it just so happened that the police walked out on stage in, in, a, in a northern New York in a club, and there were four people in the audience. And the group decided, well, you know, these people, here they are paying, you know, they, they actually bought tickets to see an unknown group from England. So let's give them a hell of a show. Well, luckily they did, because one of those four people was a DJ who had come all the way from Boston, who was a DJ, had his own punk show uh, at MIT. His name was Oedipus. And he got, they gave him the Roxanne single. And he was so enamored with the group that he went back and he just banged that single on the radio. Well, it became a regional hit. And that's when Jerry Moss 
you know, saw it at the and Billboard uh, up there saying, you know, it was a regional hit, and he 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 saw A and M Records next to it, and gives me a phone call in London, and said, uh, I see there's the police are a regional hit, uh, and it says A and M Records. Is that my band in America? And I said, well, yes, it is. And he said, well, we better do something. I said, yeah, you better. He <laughs> says, well, get him back over here. Let's start working the record. And that that got the ball rolling. So the lesson was that Oedipus actually was a was a this one guy had had taken this Roxanne song that I had basically recognized as a great song. So it was a it was a one-two punch. If I hadn't recognized the song, it never would have gotten recorded. But reality was Oedipus put it on the air and Oedipus changed the game. That one guy, and it could be, you know, John Landau with Bruce Springsteen, you know, who was a journalist. It could be, you know, you, so you never really know what's going to change the game. It could be a journalist, could be a DJ, could be, you know, whatever. So I think that's one of the important lessons of the music business is that never be too proud of, you know, playing to just a few people, you know, always do your best because, that one person could be there, you know, and, you know, that that's what it, you know, sometimes it only takes one person to change the game. And literally, Oedipus was a college student, and he broke this band as a college student from his college radio station at MIT. For those who are listening who don't know the name, Oedipus ended up becoming one of the most legendary radio figures in the history of Boston at WBCN, really turning it Boston into a progressive punk rock, new wave radio, iconic market. But it all started for him even that night where he believed in something. You believed, he believed. And then all of a sudden, Jerry Moss is playing catch up and saying, is this my band, Miles? You know, luck does play a role, you know. And the longer you can stay in the game, the greater chance you have of luck striking a hundred percent hundred percent that that's one of the lessons you know so if you make something very expensive then you have a very short window to make something happen but if you if you can take your time then you stick with it and it doesn't you know then and, and then luck can happen and i think you know in the case of you know later on a great example of that was rem you know correct who ended up signing the warner brothers as it happened but they they stuck their guns. They kept everything very minimal. They just built and built and built and built. Every album sold more than the one before. They never needed much more money. They kept everything, you know, it was easy to basically progress with the group. And I think that's one of the great lessons of the music business is that, you know, you just stick with it. But if you set yourself up to have to happen quickly, the chances are that you're just not going to get lucky and it's going to fail. And the case of the police... You know, we went to America with nothing. Uh, we played every dive. We played places that <laughs> we'd probably be embarrassed to say we played. But that's what it took. We talk about, you know, both the police and REM are such prototypical examples of the importance of artist development. But let's go back to you're managing these bands. But at the same time, you start some small independent labels in London and start recording and releasing acts as the label. So how did you decide to start labels and, and these labels' names? I didn't even know until I read the book, Det- Detford Fun City and Step Forward and Illegal Records with artists like The Fall and Sham 69. How did that all happen? 
Well, basically a line of least resistance. You know, you sign up an act and you can't get a record deal. So you say, well, let's record it a record, you know, and I learned the ropes of going into the pressing plant and, you know, getting the, the label done and the, 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 the sleeve and all of that, you know, so we couldn't get any record deals, but right, there was a market for the singles. So you could go and make a record for relatively little money, get it pressed and go out and sell it. And somebody would pay you for it, you know, because it was at the beginning of a, of a genre to be, there was a lot of interest, you know? So I, I started Detford fun city to, to, to launch squeeze because nobody would sign squeeze. I met the writer of who had started a little fanzine because nobody was writing about punk rock the way he thought that he should be written about. He started a magazine called Sniffing Glue. His name was Mark Perry, who called himself Mark P because he didn't want the tax man to notice that he was running a, um, a magazine. So I went to Mark and I said, well, you know, let's start a, a label, you know. And he said, well, let's, okay. So we signed The Fall and Chelsea and Sham 69 and a bunch of other groups. The reason I started the labels was because no major label would sign the acts. When they started signing acts later, then, of course, we didn't need to have independent labels. But the problem then shifted to America. Nobody would sign the acts in America. And that's when I started IRS Records in America. So why IRS? Why not just keep illegal records or step forward? Why, why did you decide that, okay, we're going to start a new company and we're going to call it IRS Records? Because Step Forward Records was really, you know, I, I left it to Mark Perry to decide what acts should be signed. With Detford Fund City, you know, Squeeze had already signed to AM. Illegal was sort of the police label, you know. And I figured, well, there were a lot of acts that wanted to get their records out in America that nobody would pay attention to. So, you know, people like the Buzzcocks and the Stranglers and, and Magazine and all these interesting acts. So I would create a sort of a syndicate, a label that would sign up people from other labels as well as stuff that we would sign ourselves. So it was it was really an idea that it was going to be a, you know, a, a combination of a bunch of labels. That's how I sort of started it. And that was, you know, and I needed a name and my brother had the police and my brother Ian had at Frontier Booking International, which is FBI. And I thought, well, that's sort of a fun idea following from the sort of CIA and my father and all that. So I thought, well, let's call it IRS Records, International Records Syndicate. And that was the basic idea. So it was a name that was sort of jolting. You know, you say, I'm from, I I'm from IRS. You know, people go, oh, my God, <laughs> it's the tax man. No, it's the record company, you know. So it was kind of a good marketing ploy to have a name like that. But it was really, it wasn't a huge amount of thought process in it other than the fact that, I wanted a label that could sign other labels as well, where Illegal and Step Forward and Detford Fun City already had a kind of image in England. And I figured that some of the labels might not want to sign with a label that was their competitor in England. And at what point did you develop the iconic logo of IRS Records? It was a guy named Carl Grasso, who was the number three person hired by the company, you know. We needed an art director, and he had, he came up with this idea of having this spy stroke IRS man, you know. So I give credit to Carl Grasso for having come up with the, the logo for IRS Records. So iconic and, and so in tandem with the, you know, with the musical output 
of of the label. I remember as a kid when I was record collecting and buying I these records, I knew any record with the IRS name and logo on it, the music was going to be really interesting and different and not the type of music that I would be hearing from Columbia or RCA or, or even A&M, any, any of the uh, major labels. Well, you know, the funny thing was is that I didn't think of the logo of IRS, but when I saw it, I recognized that's what we want, you know? <laughs> so it's one of the, one of the great truths, you know, I mean, like Roxanne, I, I didn't write Roxanne. I had no idea that that was in the back of Sting's mind, you know. But when I heard it, I knew, you know. Uh, and I think that sometimes you have an instinctual sort of recognition that something is is right, you know. And I think that was one of them. Carlos created it. I said, yeah, that's that's what we're going to go with. So with, with IRS Records, you went back to Jerry Moss. And you also made it easy for him to say yes to doing a deal for A&M to work with IRS. Yeah, I had, I had a big problem, okay? There was still uh, this mystique in America that these punk rock bands really couldn't play their instruments and they really weren't very good. And I had a lot of bands that I'd recorded in England and actually acts that I sort of was interested in that I didn't think Jerry Moss would go for because, I mean, this was a guy that signed the Carpenters and, and you know, and Carol King. And, you know, he, 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 was, he was interested in, good music you know so i figured you know if he listened to chelsea and the buzzcocks he was going to say no so i went in and i said look i've got to make it easy for him to say yes so i went in and i said jerry i need to start a record company because i got all these bands in england that i've already signed and recorded but here's the deal i won't take a penny of your money no money no risk on your part get your sales guys to tell you what they think they can sell and only press that number of records. So it's an easy yes, but just give me a label and distribute it by AM. And I guess Jerry figured, well, you know, Miles has got, you know, I mean, we've got Squeeze that is doing pretty well. And, you know, the police seem to be doing pretty well. And, you know, he seems to have his finger on the pulse. And what the hell? You know, it's free. Well, okay, you got a deal. So I walked out of that office with IRS records, you know. But there was one condition. You wouldn't allow Jerry to listen to the music. Yeah, I, I knew at, when he said, OK, well, let me hear the records. And I said, well, uh, that's the catch. <laughs> you can't hear any of the music because I knew the second he heard the music, he would say no. So I just said, look, it's free. How bad could it be? And uh, he said yes. So those early IRS acts, the Buzzcocks you mentioned, Oingo Boingo, Wall of Voodoo, Fashion, The Dam, The Stranglers, The English Beat. At what point did it feel like IRS was a thing? It was up and running, and the you know the motor was humming. You know, I, I thought we were doing pretty well after the first year. You know, but Jerry Moss calls me into his office and sits me down and says, "Well, Miles, you know, you put out eight records and none of them have been a hit, so let's terminate the label." Well, I I was in a bit of shock. You know, I said, Jerry. You made money, didn't you? He says, yeah, we, we made money in the first year, but, you know, not a lot, you know. And I said, yeah, but let me ask you a question. How many records does an act usually take before they break big and are, are worth it? You're, you're being interested in. He says, well, it's usually the third album. And I said, well, out of those eight records, they were the first record of each of those acts. And I said, let me ask you another question. How many deals have you ever done that you made money in the first year? 
He said, well, I don't think there was any of those deals that we ever made money in the first year. I said, yeah, but you made money with me. He said, yeah. And I said, Jerry, they're the first record of every one of those acts and you made money in the first year. That makes me unique. He says, yeah, you're right. Okay, I'm going to give you another year. Huh. Well, IRS lasted another year and it came and went without, you know, any any call into his office. So I guess we were doing okay. And it was in that in the in the year after that the go go's happened. And from that point on, of course, everybody woke up to the reality that, you know, this IRS thing is 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 real and this whole new music genre is is happening. You know. Well, talk about talk about the go go's because obviously for IRS records it was your first number one. And you were able to do things as a label head that a lot of other label heads might not be able to do because you were also a manager. So you put the Go-Go's on tour with the police, which got them in front of a ton of people. But talk about how you found the Go-Go's and you came to sign the Go-Go's when no other label in America was interested in signing the Go-Go's. There seems to be in the music business a sort of set of rules and the rule was, well, no girl group has ever had a big hit record in America. You know, I mean, you've had the Supremes with hit singles and all of that, but they were kind of Motown manufactured and all that. There was certainly no punk group, you know, all girl group that had ever succeeded and wrote their own songs. And so when I went to see the Go-Go's, I mean, I thought, well, here, here is an interesting group. There's five girls who are vivacious and, and energetic and, fun loving and they have an audience you know the whiskey was packed everybody was bopping the songs were pretty good they weren't brilliant musicians but did it matter well no it didn't really and i thought well five girls what a great gimmick i look around the room they're in the single a and r guy there i'm the only one and i later find out from the girls that they say well the reason we didn't get signed by all the other labels is because we were girls and the it was well, no girl group has ever ever succeeded. So, no, we're not going to sign you. So the reason that I ex got excited was exactly the reason why they got rejected. So I I made them an offer, and, and they ran around quickly to all the other labels that they had been <laughs> trying to make deals with. Said, well, IRS has offered us a deal. Now are you interested? And the answer was still no. Amazing. So they came back to me. And said, okay, we'll accept your deal, which was, you know, I mean, I, I still had not, you know, had huge hits with the police. I still didn't have a lot of money. So I made him a, you know, a pretty low ball deal, you know, and they accepted it. Then I brought in Richard Goddard to produce them to who I'd met with Climax Blues Band earlier on. Right. And with Blondie, who I'd toured in England, right. you know, and so I knew Richard was a song man. He knew the basics of a song. But he must have been also into this in, into the punk thing because he did Blondie, you know. You know, Richard is a really interesting figure in the history of of contemporary music because you mentioned Climax Blues Band, who you managed, who signed to Sire. Richard Goddard, a lot of people don't know, was Seymour Stein's partner in Sire, and S I R E is Richard and Seymour, the anagram for those two names. And then Richard, even before that, was a songwriter, wrote I Want Candy, you know, like some of the, the iconic songs of the 60s. And it's just a fascinating guy. When it came time to produce the Go Go's first album, I read in the book that he went over budget. 
and had to finish paying for the album out of his own pocket. Yeah, because he calls me up and he says, Miles, uh, we're about $7,000 over budget, so can you send me the money? And I said, well, Richard, I'm sorry. I don't have any more money. I said, you better hope the record sells. So I think Richard was a little upset, but the reality was the record went to number one. truth was that I paid as much as I could afford. And like I say, I was the only A&R guy in the room and the, the go-go's had no option but to sign to my company. And I had to scrape to get the budget at all. And he went over budget imagining the record business. Well, they're going to come up with the money. Well, no, I didn't have the money. <laughs> so talk us through what was that like? You have IRS records. You're in year three. You're starting to have success at the same time that the group that you're managing, your brother's group, the police, is becoming more and more successful. How were you able to manage, you know, managing one of the biggest bands in the world as well as running your own independent label? Well, I was lucky, I guess, is that the police were pretty smart. You know, they, they recognized that IRS records was actually helpful to them because I actually ended up with you know, my staff would sit in at the marketing meeting. So I knew what AM Records was doing on the police and squeeze. And because I had my people there that were there to listen to what was happening with IRS, you know. So I knew what was going on. But I also knew that one did not want to abuse the privilege. I worked very well with AM Records. And I said, look, I'm prepared to help AM Records succeed. And you help me. We're going to help each other. We're not antagonistic. Because a lot of the Acts believe that the record company somehow is the enemy, that, that uh, the record company is there basically to take advantage of them. Well, I never saw it that way. I saw it as a partnership. You need the record company to help you get started and go and happen and get big. And the record company needs you to be proactive and you know listen to what they have to say. But luckily, I, I was in a position that I had proved myself enough that I could influenced the record company to do things which they didn't agree with you know like they didn't want to have the three blonde guys with the picture on the front of the sleeve they wanted a blank sleeve they were afraid people would see oh the police they're a punk rock band you know they were afraid of the kind of image of punk rock they didn't like the idea of the police touring without a record company support you know but i ended up being able to do things because it was free basically so you know, it wasn't like I was taking their money and lining my pockets with their money. So how bad could it be? So they, they gave me a certain amount of freedom because I wasn't in there with my hand out saying, I want more money. Right. Talk about building up your staff at IRS and how your first employee at IRS Records was an ex-A&M college rep who you end up paying $100 a week. Talk about Jay. You, you asked a question. Here I am managing one group and I have another group successful. I was flying back and forth between America and England, and I was all over the place. So I knew I knew I needed people to be in Los Angeles to watch over the records we were putting out. 
So I began to hire people. I'd already hired a guy in New York, a guy named Bob Law, who was helping me sell records that I was importing. Jay had been in the college department, so he knew A&M Records, and he had helped me with Squeeze. So he seemed to be an obvious person that I could hire, mainly because he was cheap and he was still in college, you know. If he had come in and said, well, I want, you know, $2,000 a week, I would have said, sorry, you're not employed. But I said, look, I can't pay you a lot of money, but I'm going to make you vice president, which I guess was kind of like a big deal. You know, you'd say, well, you're vice president of a record company. Of course, there were only three people in the company. <laughs> and, oh, by the way, I can only pay you $100 a week. Because he was affordable, I hired him. I said, look, there's something else I'm going to do for you. I'm going to give you a percentage of the company. And I think that was what really convinced him that, you know, throw his lot in with me, you know, because he was going to be vice president, which was a title that for a college kid's pretty cool. I was going to give him 5% of the company up till the point that he got 25%, as long as he stuck with me every year for five years. I was going to pay him a hundred bucks, you know, which later I, of course, gave him a raise, but yeah, that's what the way he started. How long after that did Jay bring REM to your attention? It was a couple of years later, actually. And I read that uh, Mark Williams, who is one of the great A&R guys of the last few decades, was a college rep in Georgia who brought REM to Jay and then Jay brought REM to you. Well, actually, my brother Ian brought REM to me because they, they had been in Macon, Georgia. When I first went to Macon, Georgia to, to get an agent for the Climax Blues Band, the, the limousine that picked me up at the airport was driven by one of REM, you know, huh. who later formed the group. And my brother Ian got a job there and he became friends with all of REM. So Ian called me and said, look, yeah, I want you to sign REM. And I said, okay, I'll sign them. If they're your band and you believe in them, I'll sign them. Jay then went and saw the group, came back and he said, yeah, we got to sign this group. Got it. So it was really, a, a, you know, Ian badgering me and Jay badgering me and we signed the group. You had R.E.M. for five albums, and you already alluded to the fact that after those five albums, when IRS really helped develop this band into one of the biggest bands in the world, they ended up getting a deal, as you write about in the book, with Warner Brothers. What was that like, really incubating this band from the beginning, and then at the pinnacle of their success, seeing them leave IRS and go to Warner Brothers? I didn't really see it as them leaving. We bid for the group. We wanted to keep the group. Sure. You know, a lot of the people in the company were big fans of REM. I personally was more interested in the more outrageous groups, you know, the the, the Cramps, the Lords of the New Church, the Buzzcocks, you know, Wall of Voodoo, the, the kind of more outrageous ones. REM were a good, solid band. They just built and built and built. They never really were a problem, you know which was kind of interesting and in, in that they were the only group on our label that actually delivered every record that they had contracted. So when they got to the end, they said, well, look, we're happy to sign with IRS. Just make us a better deal than everybody else. And we're, we owe it to ourselves to go to the open market. 
which, of course, they were right. They, they did owe it to themselves. Well, it got down to Warner Brothers and IRS records. And I went to Jerry Moss and said, I need help. And he said, well, I'll, I'll throw in $3 million. Well, <laughs> we ended up with a pretty substantial offer. And then the group went to Warner Brothers and, and came back to my office. And they said, well, Miles, um, here's the offer from Warner Brothers. They've said, whatever Miles offers you, we'll double it. And I remember saying to the group, here's my advice. Get out of my office right now. Go straight to Warner Brothers. Sign this deal. It's the best deal I ever saw. Before they changed their mind, right? And they rushed out of that office. And <laughs> I guess they signed to Warner Brothers. I, I'm very proud of the fact that, you know, IRS Records delivered this great success story. A hundred percent. But at the same time, the police are getting bigger and bigger. And one of the things that you did as their manager is you decided to tour them in very exotic places where rock bands didn't normally play. You write about in the book, Egypt and India. Uh, talk about the police and touring in places where no rock bands had gone before. Well, I'm always interested in image. And, you know, the, the, the perception of glamour, in a sense. Um, you know, people go for movie stars because they imagine it's all glamorous and all this sort of stuff. And a picture, you know, the old saying, a picture is worth a thousand words. And I just imagine, you know, Sting on an Arabian stallion galloping across the desert with dressed like an Arab, you know, like Lawrence of Arabia with the pyramids in the background. I thought, now that's a great photograph. So I decided, well, you know what? I could use photographs like that to give the police this mystique of this glamorous band. Sting looked great. So we put the three band on camels and put them on Arabian stallions. And I got my photos. You know, we did the same in India. You know, I dressed them all up as Maharajas at the, at the Taj Mahal Hotel. And so the police had this mystique of being this band that, you know, they were lean and mean. Sure, three people. But. I also wanted to sprinkle them with this magic dust of, you know, success and fame and uh, glamour. And of course, what could be more glamorous than riding an Arabian stallion with the pyramids in the background or at the Taj Mahal dressed as a Maharaja, you know? So huh. uh, those were all iconic images that, that, you know, would get on the front page of newspapers. And the reality is, you know, you, you think of yourself as a journalist and, you know, you get a picture of, you know, five guys with spandex trousers, you know, then another one. And you know, they're all basically looking the same. And along comes, hey, here's a guy with, you know, with a with a, an Arabian stallion with the pyramids in the background. Okay, that's my front page. And sure enough, we had amazing press, you know. So I can't say that we made any money in India or in Egypt or any of these exotic places. But did we get a lot of press? Boy, did we get a lot of press. Well, it made the band larger than life. And, and I think that was a testament to you because you were also a photographer and you filmed documentary footage of the band yourself. It really made the band feel global before the Internet made everything feel global. Yeah. I mean, that was part of the mystique, you know, is that for a lot of people, they never leave their hometown, basically. You know, even in England, I knew people that lived in Bristol that had never been to London. But the mystique of, uh, of India and Egypt and Greece and a lot of these places was existed, you know. So I decided to take advantage of it. And basically, the police being only three guys, we could do things 
on the cheap. You know, we went to Egypt and India and it was only three guys basically and a couple of roadies, you know, so we could afford to do, do things like that. And they really were becoming the biggest band in the world. Talk about when they headlined Shea Stadium in August of 1983 and you actually introduced them in front of 70, 80,000 people. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people look at Shea Stadium as sort of a pinnacle, you know, because the Beatles did it and a couple other bands did it. I remember walking out on stage and, I mean, it, it had sold out very quickly. I mean, I heard somebody said it sold out in eight minutes. Somebody said it sold out in the afternoon. Who knows? But basically it sold out in the first day. I walk out to introduce the group. And the second I walk out on the stage, the flashbulbs are going the roar of the audience and ladies and gentlemen and the place went berserk and I left the stage thinking well I've only been out there a minute introducing the police and I'm shaking those guys are going to walk out on that stage and they're going to be there for an hour and a half what the hell's going to happen to them you know the thing about the police is that the amount of energy from the audience that was being thrown at the group was staggering really and you know, I, it, it's hard to imagine something where there's this adulation, worship, who, who knows what it is that the group is facing. And you can imagine why some groups, it goes to their head and they get crazy and they do crazy stuff. I mean, I remember I was asked to be the keynote speaker at, at the mu new music seminar in the first year where it was really kind of a big deal. It was in the Hilton Hotel in New York City, and there were like 2,000 people in the audience. And here I am, I walk out there thinking it's a few hundred people, and lo and behold, it's 2,000. And I get up and I make my speech and whatever it is. And I walk off the stage, and I can't even remember what I said, but hopefully it was something intelligent. I walk off the stage, and this girl comes running up to me and hands me a tape. And I take the tape, and then she faints in front of me just falls straight on the floor. And I'm looking around and saying, well, I didn't touch her. I didn't do it. You know, <laughs> I'm thinking people might've thought I'd slugged her or something, you know? And I realized at that moment that this was a girl that came running up to hand me her tape, thinking that I was this guy that could change her life and open doors and all this sort of thing. And I think that was probably the first moment that I realized that just how big everything was and that it splashed on me too. You know, right. so people imagine, that I was this guy that could make them as big as the police, you know? Right. And this girl, man, I don't know what happened to her, you know, but <laughs> anyway, that was, that was one of those moments, you know? So, yeah, I mean, you, you, you end up in this situation where, you know, there's this huge amount of audience and the, you know, everybody, you can do no wrong in a way, you know, but the reality is you can. For sure. You know, the police hit, the pinnacle of their success in the 80s, and then you continue on as Sting's manager for his solo career. When you think about how long the relationship was professionally between you and the police and you and Sting, you your management deal with Sting didn't end until 2001. So you were in business with Sting and he in business with you for well over 20 years, which is a rarity in the business. Well, I think Sting was very smart, you know, and I and I think we worked well together. Sting said something to me very early on that I always remembered. He said to me, look, never lie to me. Just tell me the truth. And that is rare. 
because there's so many artists that I've come across, they don't want the truth. They want to hear what they want to hear. They want to be told how great they are. Sting wanted the truth. And I think that was something that's one of the reasons why he's been successful. And other artists that I've seen who are successful are artists that want the truth. They want their manager to tell them the truth. You know, they, you know, anybody can tell you what you want to hear. It's the guy that will tell you what you should hear that's important. Correct. You also talk about in the book how your management deal with the police was a little unique in that there were three guys in the band and there was you and you had equal shares in the business of the band, which is unusual. There are other managers who have had similar deals, but I think it was a recognition of the fact that I played a role in this police success as much as any of the other members. Of course, if Sting didn't write the hits, there wouldn't have been a hit band, you know. But I, I did I did things that helped the police become as big as they did. You know, so did Stuart, so did Andy. And I think the fact that I continued getting royalties and that I was part of the band, I think it, it also inspired me. If I was told, well, you're going to be our manager, but it's only going to be for five years and then goodbye, I would be thinking, well, five years, that's not very interesting. So I think the, the deal that the police made inspired me to be and do as much as I did. For sure. One thing I didn't realize until I read the book is I always associate you with the Go-Go's having signed them to IRS records, but I didn't realize that there were two all-female bands at the time who were as big as any of their male counterparts, the Go-Go's and then the Bangles. And even though the Bangles weren't signed to IRS Records, you were their manager. What was it like managing the Bangles and being the label for the Go-Go's at a similar point in time? You could almost say, well, what was it like being, you know, handling the wall of voodoo and buzzcocks and so-and-so and the police and squeeze and so-and-so? You know, people think, well, it's an all-girl group. It must be unique. Well, I looked upon them. You know, Bengals were just a good group. So was, so was the Go-Go's. You know, the fact is they happened to be all women shouldn't have been a defining description of them. You know, there could have been one male member. It could have been two. It doesn't really matter. But the Bengals were a very good group. The, the Go-Go's were a very good group. They each had uh, something to offer that was different. In the case of the Bangles, it was not a good idea for me to be the record company because I had already the Go-Go's on IRS records. And the market being what it is would look upon them as, well, they're both all-girl groups. They're both from Los Angeles. They're both kind of punky. They both got the same manager. They're all the same. So I decided to take the, the Bangles and, and take them to a different record company, CBS, as a way to separate them. So I was the manager of the Bangles, but the record company for the Go-Go's. And the, the interesting thing about your management deal with the Bangles is you started a management company with Mike Gormley, who was based in L.A., and you gave it a name consistent with all of the other names that you and your brothers were naming your entities. So there was IRS Records, there was Frontier Booking, FBI, there was the police. Tell everybody what you named your management company with Mike. LAPD, Los Angeles Personal Director. 
I thought that was very clever. So going back to IRS records, your deal with A&M eventually ran its course. You leave A&M in 1985 for MCA. In 1989, you leave MCA for EMI. At what point did you realize that things with IRS may be winding down? Well, you know, the reality of, of, of you know, what goes up is that we started off with very inexpensive as time goes on, you add more staff. You know, we ended up somewhere like 50 people. Well, all of a sudden, you've got rent to worry about. You know, you've got taxes to worry about. You know, people come in, they want a bonus. You know, you know people, you know, pe- people aren't content to stay where they were. So things change. And as time went on, we were left AM. We got a better deal at MCA, even though they didn't really honor all the, the points that I would have liked. And then we went to EMI. The reality was, by the time we got to EMI, we were no longer like three or four people running a record label. And what the hell, you know, it was 60, 70 people who wanted to get fed and eat, you know. So your your question becomes, well, do I pay royalties or do I pay rent? That That's the kind of issue you start face. You end up becoming very similar to the labels that you had basically shunned in the beginning. And I think that's part of the lesson of, of IRS record. We were no longer, you know, bucking the system, going our own way, doing what we wanted because we were affordable. You know, 50, 50 staff, 60 staff, we had people we had to pay. At what point did IRS end up being wound down and you leaving the label that you formed? We got to 95, and I think EMI realized, well, why do we need so many labels? They could absorb the catalog into their own thing. And and uh, I looked upon IRS as, well, we've kind of done our thing. We're no longer unique. We're no longer the only people signing punk rock bands. You know, the new wave is, everybody has a new wave band, you know we were no longer the only game in town. In the beginning, we were the only game in town. The Gogo was signed to us because there was no other place to go. You know, 10 years later, there are plenty of places to go. Another thing that I thought was fascinating about the book, and again, just to reiterate Miles' book, Two Steps Forward, One Step Back, is a fascinating read on a lot of levels. And one of the levels that fascinated me was, it's almost like that movie Zelig, where you end up in these crazy situations that you probably, for the life of you, would never have guessed or would never have imagined. Talk about when Donald Rumsfeld called you from the Pentagon and wanted your advice how to win hearts and minds with the Iraqi people. <laughs> yeah, this, one of those moments, my secretary comes into me and says, Miles, it's, it's the Pentagon. It's Donald Rumsfeld on the phone. And I'm thinking, yeah, 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 sure, you know. Get out of here, you know. No, no, no. It's really the, yeah, sure. Look, fuck off, you know. No, no, it really is. It's the Pentagon, you know. Well, I had done this song, Desert Rose, with Sting. And it got a lot of the Arab artists interested. And here's this American guy that's interested in putting out, you know, Arab artists in America. So maybe he'll do my records. So I started getting a lot of records from all of these people in Lebanon and Egypt and Syria and, Jordan and different countries. And some of the music was really pretty interesting. And so it kind of threw me back to the days when I lived in Lebanon and Egypt and whatever. And I heard some of this music and I 
and and they'd mixed it with Western music. And so I thought, well, this is really interesting, which is why I got Sting interested in doing Desert Rose. So I became an expert on who's who in the music business in the Arab world. And the Pentagon was interested in how do you win hearts and minds in the Middle East. So they decided to call the Recording Institute of America and they spoke to the president of the company and, you know, and said, well, is there any American who knows anything about, you know, Arab artists? And they were told that, well, there is this one American guy that knows everything. So call Miles Copeland. So that's how the Pentagon called me. It was the Recording Institute of America, a woman by the name of Hillary Rosen, who's now a consultant, I think, for CNN or something, or she's a lobbyist for the record business. But anyway, I get this phone call saying, well, uh, we've got all these programs about how to win hearts and minds. We'd like you to vet them. And I said, well, sure, you know. And so they send me these programs, which were completely ludicrous. I call back and I speak to the deputy secretary of defense, whose name is Tori Clark. And I said, well, I've, I've seen these programs and I would advise against them because I think they're counterproductive. And they said, well, will you come to Washington and tell us what to do? <laughs> well, <laughs> that was an offer a little bit too hard to say no to. So I caught the next plane to Washington, go to the Pentagon, dressed in my Brooks Brothers suit, looking as straight as I could possibly be. I met at my entranceway with a Marine guard, taken in a golf cart up the corridor of war down to Rumsfeld's area. I mustered in and around this big oval table, there are people from the White House, the State Department, the Pentagon, and they sit me down and they all introduce themselves and they say, okay, what should we do? Here I am advising, you know, the Pentagon on what they should do. Well, as it happens, Tory Clark put out a book called Lipstick on a Pig a few years later. And there's a great chapter in there about my meeting at the Pentagon, which is quite flattering, I, might, I would have to say. One of the ideas that I pitched was that really what you need to do is show that you care about what the Arabs have, not just, you know, wave the flag saying, aren't we great? You know, people appreciate you liking what they like, you know. And that was apparently a revelation. To me, it was, you know, Dale Carnegie 101. But anyway. Um, Your father would have been proud, Miles, or at, yeah. least, or at least gotten a chuckle out of it. Yeah, I mean, it was one of those things where Desert Rose leads to, you know, doing this belly dance show, you know, using Arabic music, using signing Arab artists, getting a call from the Pentagon. And it was one of those one thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. Very unlikely. But it's, it was definitely an, a, an eye opener to go to the Pentagon to see how, you know, things are being done. Well, all these stories and more are in the book, and we're winding down, Miles. But as as we uh, wrap up, I would love for you to talk about the castle, because as an A and R person, you know, friendly with a lot of songwriters who have spoken so vividly about their time spent at Miles Copeland's castle in France. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, you know, one of the great problems of every act and every record company and whatever is. You know, you're, you're going to make a record. You, you really need a hit single. You, re, you really need a song to be the flagship that's going to, you know, get attention. And so many times with Wishbone Ash, for instance, they would come in and, well, we've written 10 songs and let's go record. Well, is there a hit single in those 10 songs? 
And so I had always had years of wishing that I had always had more songs to choose from. So I had this idea. I bought this castle in France when I sold my record company and I had money in the bank. And I did this crazy thing of buying a castle. And I decided to validate it, you know, to show I really wasn't so crazy. And I came up with this idea of, well, if I can invite songwriters from, you know, to come in, get them separated from their, you know, comfort zone, put them in a castle in France, which has a kind of a mystique and a different, you know, cut them off from the world that maybe I could end up with some interesting songs, you know, and I would bring my artists and I teamed up with Jerry Moss and I invited some name songwriters, people like Carol King and, and uh, people from Nashville who had the discipline of writing songs. And I, I thought, well, if, if I could create this kind of workshop, we, we create sort of a song factory. The idea was basically to get more songs. So it was kind of an adjunct to my record company and management is that if I could and also create opportunities for some of the songwriters, you know, and, you know, Belinda Carlisle came, you know, Keith Urban came and wrote with the Go-Go's. Who would have thought that Keith Urban, this guy that's now probably one of the biggest country artists in the world, would have written with two girls from the Go-Go's, this punk group from <laughs> L.A., you know. And they wrote a number one song, which changed his life, and he marries Nicole Kidman, and, you know, the rest is history, you know all these amazing people, you know, Jeff Beck and uh, Peter Frampton and, uh, you know, so many people came. It was, it was, it was an amazing uh, experience, but it also taught me that sometimes it's the weird mixtures that work, Right. but getting out of their comfort zone was important. And I think that was something that, that Bon Jovi once said to me, he came and he said, you know, when I'm in LA, when I'm in, in New Jersey, nobody can get to me. My managers, my, my handlers, keep everybody away here. I'm just the guy that writes rock and roll songs. Like, like I was in the old days. And he says, I'm just one of the guys. And he wrote some of the best stuff he's ever written. So I sometimes getting people out of the comfort zone is important. Are you still running sessions at the castle? So ASCAP comes once a year and they, they invite everybody and they basically picked up the mantle of, of uh, the IRS songwriter retreats. And now it's an ASCAP songwriter retreat. So they invite everybody and they, they followed the same basic formula. And I'm here helping make the thing work, but they invite everybody. And again, they invite country people, people from England, people from America, and they create these mixes. And we've had now, I think we've had four number one country songs already. Amazing. And so post pandemic, we can look forward to more songwriting retreats and hopefully more number one hit songs coming out of the castle. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've basically... You know, I've decorated the castle with a view to make it interesting and inspirational. So it and now I've got people that come and they write books and scripts and photography and painting. And we do a lot of things at the castle now, you know, basically trying to make it an inspirational place to, you know, that that's kind of my idea for the place. And validates crazy idea out of buying a castle in the first place. <laughs> well, there's so many stories that we didn't have the time to get two that are in the book, Two Steps Forward and One Step Back, Miles' memoir. I recommend that everybody check it out and uh, learn even more about the stories and the music behind the man, Miles Copeland. So, Miles, thank you so much for letting us host you today. It's been a pleasure. Everybody, check out Miles's book, Two Steps Forward, One Step Back. Miles Copeland. Thank you, Miles. Well, it was nice to be with you. Bye-bye. I hear the rhythm. Of never use it. I hear the talk.
Thanks a lot to Miles Copeland for joining us this week. To learn more about the police, Sting, and IRS records, check out Miles' book, Two Steps Forward, One Step Back, My Life in the Music Business. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear or have suggestions for a future show, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at rockschoolpodcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you back here next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbarg, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Willie Fastino, Catherine Hoppy, Kayla Flores, Zach Kornhauser, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high school.